Hello, and thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Ashley Burrell. I'm the Secretary of the Board for Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. We will be producing monthly podcasts featuring women of color in the peace and security field. So please visit WCAPS.org regularly for more details. Uh, hello, this is uh, WCAPS, our webinar series. We're very happy to have with us uh, Nicolette Lucent and I, Nicolette, I'm assuming I say your your last name correctly because I've seen it many times. I don't know if I've actually tried to pronounce it, but um, it's great to have you here. Um, as you all know, she is the leader and running everything there uh, in leadership for Healthcare Ready, and her organization has done great work in um, in Haiti and in other parts of the Caribbean, and they were involved in the. Ebola outbreak in 2014-2015 in and are tracking right now what's going on there. So it's a real honor to uh, hear from Nicolette to hear what she's doing, what Healthcare Ready is doing right now, particularly as they prepare for the hurricane season. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and also she'll say a few words about national security. So I'm going to turn it to you, Nicolette. Uh, happy to have you here. Great. Thank you, Bonnie. Um, glad to be here. And I'm looking forward to your questions and um, feedback and ideas as well. I'm just going to spend a few minutes talking a little bit about kind of my path and then the organization's um, path as well, and you're going to hear your your thoughts. Um, so we, as an organization, we have been around um, from 20, 2007. So. Um, had to kind of stop and think, think about that for a second because um, over the course of our history, we've kind of evolved a few different times um, and, and really started out of a response to Hurricane Katrina. Um, and for our organization, it was really seeing that the, the link between um, security and, and disasters, regardless of the type of disaster, was that whenever there is a crisis of some sort, there's always a public health impact. There's always um, some need to deal with the public health outcomes, population health needs that come from a crisis. So even if it's a bridge collapse or, um, you know, a, a tornado or a hurricane or some other type of event, it doesn't just have to be a disease outbreak or traditional type of public health emergency in order for there to be public health impacts or some sort of cascading effect that impacts public health. So my organization, we've been doing that for a number of years. So I'm going to, you know, take a step back and um, talk about me, I guess. Um, my personal interest in um, disasters and health security kind of evolved from my scientific interests. So um, I was an academic for, for many years, a researcher doing um, translational clinical research and, and um, some clinical studies as well, not not really trials, but more clinical studies, um, to be able to understand um, how to think about preventative strategies to um, combat the HIV pandemic. And um, for the work that we were doing, is at a time when the idea of being able to use medicines or some sort of approach to prevent the transmission of HIV was still in its nascent stages. This was very conceptual. We were um, a part of those research teams that were doing the proof of concepts to, to show, well, to test and then to show that you could use medicine to prevent transmission of HIV. 
And so um, we were doing a lot of work on what that looks like, how that works. And one of the things that really jumped out to me in our work while we were doing research studies that were global, truly global, was thinking about the social inequities that drove transmissions. So how did things that were not traditional public health issues, were not actual medically medical you know issues or things that were medically connected to patient outcomes, how did that actually drive what we were seeing as it related to transmission? So things like um, cultural imbalances of power between uh, men and women and um, things that were socially acceptable for women to do or ask for um, versus versus men, um, behaviors from men that were acceptable, um, the dynamic between heterosexual and homosexual couples and what was allowed um, or acceptable in different, um, in different cultures and different countries and how those behaviors drove the actual transmission rates um, and within the incidence rates, the, the gender imbalances that we were seeing. So um, those things really played a significant role in thinking about how we designed medicines, how we were thinking about how frequently medicine needed to be dosed, how the medicine could be dosed. Could it be a pill? Did it have to be a film? Did it have to be a gel? How did discretion work? Um, all of those things kind of came together and, and it was with the mindset of how do you have to pull together this kind of multi-sectoral um, approach that is medically centered but is taking into consideration all of the realities of the social context in order to stop a pandemic. And that's, um, that was a lot of the work that I, that I was doing um, as a part of the research team that I was a part of. Um, and for me, that really began to show how work that was happening at the bench, um, as we like to say, really translated into infectious disease policy and global health policy. Um, so in some ways, for me, all, you know, all of this has always been connected and, and it's been tied together in a, a range of different ways in, in which I've approached global health work over the last decade or so. Um, and, and so for me, moving from kind of the bench and, and the, the global health research into global health policy was pretty natural. Um, and then transitioning into health security, um, again, was kind of a natural fit as you're thinking about the security risks that are associated with health instability. So um, for me, that really began with a focus on um, thinking about how to um, understand what, what it looked like to be in settings where um, health access was short, what that meant relative to how people would um, be able to respond to a crisis, and how um, global um, mobilization of resources for a disaster should be should be planned for and, and done in the context of the ongoing threat environment. Um, and so for me, that um, really kind of came to a head during the Ebola response of 2014 um, and kind of the, the surrounding the surrounding 16 months or so around the response where um, it was really, for, for me, I think it was um, an opportunity to kind of pull this understanding of how we think about global health and how we think about emergency response, but, but also how do we mobilize a, a global coalition to, to respond um, and support the WHO response, um, and how all those things have to happen at the same time in order to stop a, a, the spread of a highly infectious disease. Um, for my vantage point, it's, it's never 
ever been that national security is kind of its own silo and then health security as we talk about it is its own. Health security is very much a part of national security. Um, and as we see right now, even as we're thinking about what's as, and we're all tracking what's happening in the, in the Congo, um, and as we see that, that Ebola outbreak, we know that A, it takes infrastructure in order to be able to respond, and, and that infrastructure is going to be the same infrastructure that's going to be critical for national security. And B, you really can't have a secure, you can't have a secure economy, you can't have a secure nation state that, that has extreme vulnerabilities as it relates to, to, to health, as it relates to, to pandemic risk, disease um, outbreak risk, and the ability to prevent, detect, and respond to that. So they are very much one in the same, and and the parts of the the economy that are going to be required to be able to respond to um, and detect and respond to a, pan a pandemic or potential pandemic are going to be the same things that are going to be a, a big part of the national security infrastructure of any nation, including the United States. So for me, that's kind of how I came to this and how I continue to look at this. Um, but for our organization, Healthcare Ready, um, just kind of picking back up what I mentioned about us starting really after Hurricane Katrina, it was because there was a recognition that there needed to be more done on, as a sole focus of how public health impacts and, and critical healthcare infrastructure were focused on in a public-private partnership um, around the issues that relate to, to disaster and healthcare preparedness and response. Um, and so that's what the organization's been doing for the last 11 years. And um, most of the focus of the organization has been on the U.S. and U.S. territories. But that gets really tricky because we're talking about the global supply chain. And so much of the global supply chain is, in fact, global. So we, we you know, kind of teeter on this line between being able to mobilize for um, disasters in our backyard and disasters and disease outbreaks is really what I mean by that, um, but also recognizing that anything that we do as it relates to, to healthcare preparedness and response is in fact global because of the nature of the healthcare and the pharmaceutical supply chain. So um, for our organization, that's meant that there have been a range of disasters, even those that have happened in the Caribbean, where there, if there has been an appropriate response from the organization in order to make sure that medicines access could be sustained, personnel that needed to get into country to be able to support the response um, can be supported, and that parts of the healthcare system that needed to get back up and running could. Um, and so for, for Haiti, a part of what the organization was able to do was assist with the movement of medicines. That was a big part of um, our response was not just trying to get people there, but thinking about what medicines needed to be there and how those medicines could safely be um, transported because we're thinking about, again, absence of infrastructure. So much like what we saw during Hurricane Maria, when ports are down and airports are damaged, how do you make sure that you can then um, get product moved? Whether that product is donated clothing or time-sensitive, temperature-sensitive medicines. So that was a big part of what we focused on, as well as thinking about what the um, overall risk to the rest of the Caribbean was, tracking things like infectious disease outbreaks, and a lot of this happened before my time, but making sure that um, we were very engaged in, in continuing to track what was happening, what needed to happen, the impact of damaged infrastructure on the public health response, and being able to um, support 
support our partners in the pharmaceutical industry as they were donating product to our partner NGOs and needing to get that product moved and um, and secured along the supply chain to into the disaster site. Um, during Ebola, it was interesting for our organization because there were kind of two responses going on to Ebola. Um, there was a global response to the disaster and the the, the um, disease outbreak in, in West Africa, and then there was the mobilized um, response to the U.S. And um, for this organization, there was some focus on thinking about issues of PPE, personal protective equipment, and those sorts of issues as it related to West Africa. But there was also considerations of how we do um, a, a pandemic response in the United States. So how are pharmacists and other healthcare providers trained to be able to provide resources that are necessary um, during um, a, a pandemic or potential pandemic? How are facilities that um, might be first receivers, so urgent care centers, emergency departments, that was the big issue. Um, how are they training all of their staff to be able to recognize and quarantine someone who seems to be presenting symptoms and could potentially be infectious? Um, so the organization was working on things like creating guides for pharmacists, being able to harmonize the guidance that was going out to pharmacists and other healthcare providers, um, being able to work with partners in the federal government as they were thinking about how to best mobilize different parts of healthcare um, and what the what the best practices needed to be for being able to deal with something that is as highly infectious as Ebola. So um, that's a little bit about what we did then. Um, if time permits, I'll actually spend a little bit of time talking about the last hurricane season and specifically um, what happened in Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands because I think that's a good example of the the links between national security and health security. So, um, as we all know, the hurricane um, season of, of 2017 was catastrophic and um, really nowhere is that more clear than in the Caribbean, including in Puerto Rico. Um, what we see in the eight, nine months following the, the hurricanes is that there's still significant damage to critical infrastructure across the Caribbean. There are parts of the Caribbean, like Barbuda, that were virtually flattened by the, the hurricane and rendered inhabitable. So, Moving all the way kind of up the Caribbean, you're, you're still seeing that there are a lot of islands that still have significant damage, significant public health risk, and we have a hurricane season that's beginning next week. So um, for our organization, our focus really was mainly on Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands, but we did a lot of tracking of the, the public health needs and medical needs for other parts of the Caribbean that were damaged by the hurricanes because a lot some of the medicines and the uh, medical products that are needed in those islands actually come from Puerto Rico or move through Puerto Rico at some point. So, again, in order for, you know, these islands to be secure and, and be able to respond to the public health challenges that they were facing during a disaster, they still were dependent on other islands to get the products that they needed. So, um, for our organization, we really look at, um, we, we look at, public health infrastructure as a part of this overall national and, and just general global critical infrastructure. So um, it is not, not that looking at what happens in the health context is distinct 
from other parts of, of um, critical infrastructure and health and national security issues. They're one and the same. It's essentially one of the critical sectors that is um, considered during a disaster or considered in order to sustain national security. Um, but one of the things that's unique about health is that it has these dependencies on other critical infrastructures that may more or less stand alone. So if you think about energy or electricity, it there are dependencies on things like transportation, like road access. But electricity kind of stands alone. Its capability as a sector to make sure that energy is resilient, um, it kind of happens in its own silo. There are a lot of dependencies and a lot of systems that are dependent on energy, but it happens in its own silo in some ways. Um, transportation is similar. There are, there are road access issues and things of that nature, but it, you know, again, roads are roads, um, and making sure that transportation flows are happening happens in its own silo, and those are examples of other types of critical infrastructure. Health is different because while health essentially is the outcome and the, the critical infrastructure are the um, physical assets needed to sustain health, Health itself and health as a critical infrastructure has extreme dependency on other types of critical infrastructure. And so if we're thinking about health and healthcare delivery during a crisis, it's not gonna happen without being able to understand what energy access looks like, whether that be um, diesel fuel for generator power, as we saw in Puerto Rico, or electricity. Um, it's not gonna happen in the absence of um, transportation because the global supply chain requires logistics um, to be able to move, you have to move product and move people in order to get um, get healthcare delivered. Um, and it's also not going to happen in the absence of clean water. Water resilience is a very big issue um, for national security. It's a very big issue in health security. If you think about the types of healthcare delivery that are dependent on clean water um, and our, our access and our ability to to deal with issues of potable, non-potable water. Water, sterile water access, um, the processes that depend for medical manufacturing that depend on clean water, um, those are things that are not traditionally thought of as health, but are very much a part of what healthcare resilience and health security looks like. And so those infrastructures are examples of the dependencies. Telecom is another, thinking about telecommunications and the way in which we depend on telecommunications, especially in this environment of health IT um, and Dependence on things like electronic health records are dependent on these types of critical infrastructures, which are all critical infrastructures in their own pieces of the national security framework, are incredibly important. And so for us, we do spend a lot of time not just thinking about health in its own piece, but also those critical infrastructures and those dependencies, because we have to be able to work with our partners in those sectors in order to get healthcare back up and running. And that was a big part of what we saw in Puerto Rico was once the grid went down and we were at a point where um, water access was intermittent, um, power access was, was limited to generator power, and then diesel fuel was um, was a challenge because of transportation issues. Healthcare is going to be the, the first cascading effect that you're going to see. And so um, I, I use that as just an example of how um, the links between overall vulnerabilities and vulnerabilities in healthcare um, manifest, and I think that that really there is nowhere where that's more clear in the national security framework than when we think about critical infrastructure. So with that, I'm happy to um, pause and take some questions or um, touch on any other topics that might be of interest to the group. 
Thanks, Nicolette. Um, I, I, I just have a question. I'm still, um, you know, focusing on the part you talked about in terms of preparing for the hurricanes that are coming up and the situation that uh, Puerto Rico still is in right now. Um, you know, as you, as you, and that it's going to be probably as bad as it was last year, which is not good news. Um, I, that could, that makes me a bit concerned because of the lack of, I think, response, um, by the U.S. government and still in terms of Puerto Rico. Um, how are you, how do you factor such, um, you know, and I'm assuming in a, there was a, a time when maybe the government was much better in responding to this, these things. But how do you factor that into um, when you know you're you're heading for another hurricane season that's going to be as bad as last year, and we still have not really dealt with what we did last year? Does it is it kind of overwhelming, or how do you how do you approach that? Yeah, so I think um, it's going to be overall disaster context. Um, so um, including hurricanes, but just that you know. There's, there's a volcano that's um, erupting right now in Hawaii. There were wildfires at the same time as the hurricanes last year. We had a very rigorous flu season um, this, this past year that is really only slowing about a month or two ago. Um, our overall threat environment is, is different than it has been um, over time, but I, but I think probably not as sharply different as we've seen in terms of the number of incidences. What we're seeing is that there are far more intense incidences. So Hurricane Harvey, for example, the amount of rain that I think was the equivalent of 1 trillion, 1.5 trillion gallons of rain that fell in the five-day um, span of the hurricane, that was a but having three extreme hurricanes back to back to back was not. If you look at the 2005 season when Hurricane Katrina hit, there were other hurricanes that were not as catastrophic because of where they hit, but similarly intense. So we've seen this pattern before. And if you look at, um, again, that hurricane season where Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005, we then had Gordon, Helene, and I think um, Isaac. Um, in 2006. So we've had seasons where we've seen intense hurricane season, a catastrophic event, followed by another intense hurricane season and you know, potentially catastrophic events as well. Um, but the intensity of those individual events, I think evidence has shown, is, is significantly sharper. And the overall threat environment in which we're seeing more catastrophic events in total is more significant as well. So again, going back to kind of the wildfires, um, the volcano that's happening right now, but then also a, a, a new, I guess you would say, um, and, and less commonly considered to be a public health threat, but it very much is, is the incidences of shootings that we've seen. Um, the, the, the rise of terrorism, whether it be domestic terrorism or otherwise, um, and, and that implication of what that means for public health outcomes and public health risks. So our overall threat environment, I think, is a little bit different now. Um, but what we're really seeing is with, even within that threat environment, the types of events that we're seeing seem to be more extreme. Um, and, and using Harvey and even Maria um, as, as examples of the types of extreme events that we're seeing. One of the conversations that happened after the last hurricane season because of the intensity of the winds with um, actually the beginning of Irma as well as Maria was a discussion of adding an additional category to the hurricane category classification. So instead of the highest category being five, adding a six 
that would account for being able to classify um, with, I think, above 150 miles per hour, which was seen during Maria, and I think at the very beginning of Irma as well. Um, and that discussion um, in, in itself was unprecedented. The fact that we've had this classification of, of these five categories of storms for so long, and now all of a sudden we're thinking about that being insufficient because of the extremity of the event. So um, that is part of what we're seeing, and, and I think, um, you know, to the point about the, the response, I think we, we, we've never been great at emergency response. I don't think there's ever been a point in our global history or our national history where emergency response was something that was prioritized um, and something that we were exceptional at. However, I do think we have been better than some of our counterparts, and I think we've been able to um, position ourselves as, as kind of one of the experts in preparedness and emergency management because while we've not been splendid at it, we've had fewer catastrophic events and we are more mobilized than some of our partners in the rest of the world. But I think globally, emergency management has just not been an investment in infrastructure and capabilities that we've decided to make as a global society. That is also true in the U.S. Um, but I, I think part of what is unique about how emergency management is um, handled here is that it isn't just a federal response. And so part of what we have to look at is how we think, how we think about and approach funding and, and ensuring capabilities at those lower levels of government, that state level and territorial level and that local level of government, which is always going to be the incident commander for an emergency response. And so that's a big part of, I think, what we're seeing is that if we, if we do solely keep all of our assets in the federal government and all of the capabilities in the federal government, we're going to see that the local governments are not going to be sufficiently powered to respond to events, and they're always going to be in charge in their local jurisdiction. And so that's a big part of it. Um, the other part of it is that if you're thinking about kind of how federal government responses should be, we have to think about all of the responses. And that's, I think, where we really um, find ourselves in trouble because, frankly, the federal government is not sufficiently resourced right now and funded to be able to, to mount the, the types of responses for the duration of time that the last two years of the threat environment has required. And so we are going to um, put those assets in the federal government and expect that they're going to be able to respond, we're going to have to think about how we plus up those capabilities. And so that does mean money, people, things. Um, I think the things are often in the private sector, and so we can talk about what partnerships look like to leverage that, but people and money are going to be a really big part of what it looks like to be able to, to have sufficient emergency response infrastructure. And I just don't think that what we see, whether it be in the kind of DHS FEMA side in the U.S., um, and all the way to the HHS side is sufficient. Um, nowhere, I think, is that more clear than if you think about the disaster medical assistance teams, the DMAT teams that are essentially medical reservists that are um, partial employees of, of, of HHS, and they, they are not employed by HHS except in a disaster where they become temporary employees and can deploy as medical personnel in a disaster zone. And when you think about the DMAT teams, they work in tranches. And as on the DMAT list, they were all the way at the bottom tranche of the list of people that they could deploy by the time hurricane season ended. And that was just because of the number of events that we had. So again, that goes back to 
are we sufficiently equipped with resources and people? Um, I think the answer is no, and I think most people would agree that the answer is no. Um, so for our vantage point, that what that leads us to is we have to get to a point where we're putting all assets and resources on the table to be able to respond, um, not just depending on the federal government to do it. Um, fortunately, emergency management is not really a political issue. However, investment in emergency management is going to be a political issue because it's going to be competing with other priorities and emergency response and, and frankly, national security is one of those that may or may not not be the highest priority depending on the priorities of the day. Talking about investing in infrastructure as a strategy to, to be more resilient may or may not be something that is, is seen as a political priority at the time depending on what the threat environment looks like and the number of other priorities that are competing for those same dollars. So that's, you know, one major piece of it. So in order to really do this well, I think we need all hands at the table. We need all of the capabilities across all sectors. The other part of this is we have to be really honest about how much we expect from individuals, how much we expect from people in terms of what their um, obligations are as citizens and how we are equipped, equipping them to be able to respond and be prepared for disasters. And some of that is, is, is really outside of the realm of any of the conversations that we traditionally have in the national security or health security space. Things like around housing, and finance that have nothing to do with what we typically talk about as it relates to national security, but have everything to do with what it means to have individuals who may or may not be dependent on their government to be able to assist them in times of crisis. The reality is we have to develop an infrastructure for emergency management that has a floor, and we have to determine what that floor is and what the capabilities are at that floor. But if you are above that floor, it is possible that you may not actually need the government in a disaster because you may be resilient on your own. Your family's resilience strategy, your individual resilience strategy may be sufficient if you have those other assets and those other pieces of the system that are working in your favor. But if you don't, we have to decide what that floor is and then build that government capability and build that overall emergency management framework with all sectors to be able to meet what we commonly agree on to be that floor. And I think that's where we're struggling right now. And I think that's something that we saw most clearly during Katrina and all the way going forward. And I and I think one one of the things that we know is that Katrina is still recovering. Um, New Orleans is still recovering from Katrina. There is still a part of New Orleans and Louisiana that is still learning the lessons from Katrina. That was a long time ago. So it stands to reason that if that's where we are in a part of the Gulf Coast that's, that saw a catastrophic event more than a decade ago, Puerto Rico is in a similar position where we're going to see that in Puerto Rico, there's going to be recovery work going on for the next decade easily. And so there's always going to be a consistent threat every hurricane season, especially this one, to doing or undoing um, the, the work that was done in recovery up until now. And I think that's the, the challenge that we're going to have to contend with is how do we rebuild in a way that really improves resilience, but also in a way that allows for us to really understand how to recover while we may be responding. And I, I just, I, I think it's, it's more extreme than it's ever been. 
you know, Texas is still recovering from Harvey as much as, um, you know, Puerto Rico is recovering from Maria, but the infrastructure damage is different. And because one of those jurisdictions is sitting out in the Atlantic, the threat is different as well. And I think that's for, you know, for organizations like ours, that's really what we're looking at, you know, the, the 2018 hurricane projections and worrying about is what does it mean to be in recovery while you're also preparing for potential storms? Great. Thanks. And I'll, I'll, I'll let uh, others ask questions. I'm, I'm intrigued by the, by the comments you made about the terrorism and the violence and how that's impacting health. I think that's a whole different new area that I hadn't thought about. Does anyone have any, any questions? Calcio Brandon? I think it was a great presentation overall, and I, you know, um, thinking of the areas that she was working in compared to the areas that I kind of focused on, you can definitely see there's a contrast in terms of response and how um, communities, especially at the grassroots, respond to an outbreak. Um, so definitely, it, it was it was it was something to learn, something great to learn. Okay, great, Nicolette, did you hear that? I did, I did. Thank you. Okay, all right, great. Um, Brandon, did you have any comments? I just had a question. Um, you brought up public-private partnerships in uh, combating uh, some of the global health security issues that we have. Is there any thought to maybe a future of an advisory committee made of academia, private health, um, and maybe civil society? serve as an advisory committee since there's no really interagency effort to combat global health. Uh, as you mentioned before, since global health relies on so many critical infrastructures, that interagency effort would be really beneficial to you. So any thoughts to the future of that? Nicolette, did you hear? I did not. It really had to deal with public-private partnerships and can um, can the private sector, I believe, Randy, you were saying, you know, what kind of, what kind, of, how can you leverage public-private partnerships to help with some of these, um, some of these response, uh, responses and disasters and things like that? Um, I think that's what you were saying. Is that correct, Brandon? That's yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. Lack of um, of interagency work, you know, of centralized interagency work in the federal government to be able to be effective at answering some of the emergency uh, problems that we have in global health. Does that make sense? I heard enough pieces that I think I could put it together. Put that, put that with what I had originally said. So I think that it's really about public-private partnerships. I think that's the foundation of the question. Okay. So um, public-private partnerships play a large role in part because so much of the assets that we need during the disaster are in the private sector. So um, when you think about those people, you know, the money and the stuff, a lot of that stuff is in the private sector. And so what that means is that we have to be in a position where we're working with the private sector in order to um, to respond. And I think the the best pieces of the disaster response happen in partnership. Hello, hello Nicola, because people mute their phone. I think there's a feedback coming. So, okay. All right, thanks. Go ahead, Nicolette. Thanks. Okay. Um, so I, I think really what we've seen and, and really the, what, why the organization that I lead even exists is because public-private partnerships were not happening always during disasters, and oftentimes that was the difference between people surviving and not because they just didn't have what they needed in order to respond. The government does not have 
in a silo everything that is required for a sufficient emergency response. And that's not just the U.S. government, that's every government. And so in order to make sure that the response is sufficient, it requires partnerships. Now, how those partnerships happen is 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 difficult. It's it's hard to make sure that engagements are happening between partners and that the relationships and the business model, the government has its own business model, the private sector has its own business model, how they work together and can translate and understand each other's needs is a is a real challenge in building those partnerships. So it's not always just that, that the government, um, you know, that, that the government does its thing and that the private sector does its thing. It's not always that the government is, is contracting the private sector to do things. And I think part of part of what's been difficult about the partnerships between the two sectors is that understanding the respective business models and how they come to the issues and what the capabilities are and what they're looking to get out of it has been really hard. Um, I, I do think there's been a recognition, especially after the last few years of disasters, that no one can go it alone. And I think that has been a motivator for keeping people at the table in a lot of these disaster preparedness conversations and will probably be a motivator helping people to um, find ways to work together whether they want to or not. I think overall there is willingness. Um, one of the recognitions in the issue of critical infrastructure that I was talking about is that vast majority of it, I mean, more than 85% is owned and held privately and held by the private sector. And so when we are talking about those healthcare facilities, the medicines, all of those trucks, those are private sector assets. And so the partnerships are required at a basic level, just being able to understand who holds what and how you work with them to be able to get access to the things that you need. On the more complex level, it's not just who owns what, but what capabilities do they have to be more resilient so that during a disaster, you can work with them to make sure that not only are they back up and running, but they're up and running in a way that benefits the people who are going to need it most during a crisis. And really, I think that's the point at which we're in in the partnership realm where the private sector has been mobilized. And sometimes through traditional NGO channels, the ones we all know and have heard of, um, but oftentimes through their own initiatives and their own work, especially in places where they may see that there's impact to, to the people that they serve or the people that are employed by them, um, they will have their own capability. But what we're starting to see is an effort to merge those. So that is not just that the private sector is kind of going off and they're saying working with NGOs and kind of dealing with their piece, but they're doing it in tandem so that there really is a unified response that has respective capabilities from the different sectors. And I think that's the direction that the partnerships are going in. It's not just kind of a quid pro quo, but more of a how do we do this in a more harmonized fashion and how do we really understand the respective capabilities and hold each other accountable to fulfill our respective missions in a way that really moves everything forward. Thanks, Nicolette. I think that um that's a good response to the question. And, and yes, I mean, I, I know with the Ebola situation, as, as you know, there was a lot of movement with the private sector with GHSA, Global Security Agenda, and working. So, you know, um, it's good to see the, the interaction um, in terms of the private sector. Um, if there are no other questions, we only have about 11 minutes left. Um, I just wanted to, to go back to your point about the, you know, you just you raised it during your discussion uh, in response to my my question about the 
upcoming uh, hurricanes this year, and you mentioned, you know, actions by, you know, terrorists or use of guns and things like that and the impact of health. I mean, can you just say a little bit about that only because it's, 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 it's an extremely logical point, but I hadn't really been thinking about that in a different way beyond, you know, the killing and the, the health to the individual. Uh, but you, you're, you're kind of saying something a bit different. Could you say a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so we think about um, terrorism and the public health impacts. Um, some of those are immediate and some of those are, are more of the cascading. Um, what we've seen in the um, the last year of, of events is that there have been um, a number of, of shooting incidences in the U.S. that have surrounded hurricane season. So if you think about even while we were talking about wildfires and hurricanes, we were also dealing with the Las Vegas shooting. Um, there is a public health emergency response to those sorts of events as well. Um, and that is because there's a need for mass care. Um, there is also a need for um, life safety, life, um, life sustaining um, missions during during that type of, of shooting, but that cascading effect um, can often be that in order to do the, the trauma care, that mass care that's required during um, that type of event, whether it be something like pulse shooting, which we did see a mobilized um, response for through the trauma centers, or something like the Las Vegas shooting, which is a little, a little bit larger in scope as well, um, there's going to be a, there's going to be a, a component of public health healthcare and public health that has to respond. The risk is that if that is not done um, within within the emergency management best practices in the right way, it has cascading effects for public health because one, um, you're thinking about kind of the acute care needs, the mass care trauma needs that are associated with the event. But then if you're if you're keeping if you're putting people in those trauma facilities, if you're putting people in the emergency departments, what happens to those chronic care patients that actually need to access care as well? So how do you do um, sustained care when you're dealing with acute care needs? Um, and a lot of that has been um, worked through over the last few years, and that's a major focus of what healthcare and public health think about is how do these trauma care facilities, how do these um, level one trauma facilities, for example, respond when there's an event of that nature in a way that is sufficient to the need that is surged from an event, but also that doesn't that minimally disrupts the rest of healthcare. And that's a big consideration for us day in and day out because, you know, when we were dealing with Las Vegas, that um, that shooting happened right in the middle of hurricane season. So if you're thinking about where assets are already deployed, um, that, you know, that was, you know, if, if you'll bear with me for a second, that was a catastrophic event. And that catastrophic event was happening in a geographically separate location. But if you actually took that event and put it somewhere that was closer to where the hurricanes were happening, which could have easily happened, we had Pulse in Florida, now all of a sudden you have an extreme strain on healthcare facilities that were already strained. Um, so there is this concern around mass care that is a part of emergency management, but there's also this concern around trauma and the role of um, how to deal with um, healthcare facilities that are able to deal with acute care needs as well as chronic care needs and the role of different healthcare facilities and different strategies to be able to separate out what the acute care needs are and the chronic care needs. 
taking that back to Ebola for a second, if you, you know, kind of take that concept, it was the same reason that we saw an increase in maternal um, mortality rates after Ebola, because women were not going to hospitals that could have had a potentially infectious person in an emergency department to have have their children. They were delivering at home in high-risk environments because they didn't want to take the risk of going into an emergency department that could have had someone that had Ebola. And so we saw the surge, and it's kind of the same thing applied in a different threat. But it's the idea of how do you deal with the acute needs in a way that allows healthcare facilities to absorb and, and process and deal with those needs in a way that it's life-sustaining and life-saving, really, without doing damage to the chronic care or the routine health needs that may be um, a regular function of public health activities in a healthcare facility. Great, thanks. I mean, that really does highlight the um, some of the other aspects to this entire issue of things we're dealing with right now in the U.S., uh, and they're not isolated. They're very much connected, in terms, particularly for those in the healthcare field, who, are, who have to deal with all of these different type of, of, of these uh, different type of things. So thanks for that. Um, unless we have another question, we have about five minutes left. Um, and if I don't see or hear anything, I just wanted to thank you, Nicolette, for doing this. I know that, you know, we tried to do this a couple of times and we finally were able to do it. Um, so thanks for doing this. I'm going to be putting this up on our website so that people can listen to this in the future. So, um, you know, good luck with all of the planning. I really hope it doesn't get too bad this year because it was pretty bad last year. Um, so, you know, and, and as you said, we're still recovering from, you know, Katrina, much less what happened last year. So, you know, you just wonder how many disasters uh, we can really deal with, particularly since, as you say, we're not, we're never been very good at planning for these things. So let's just hope that um, it's not too bad. We thank you and, and organizations like yours that are out there trying to trying to help us help the global community in dealing with these disasters. And um, thanks for being a, a, a advisory an advisory council of WCAPS and for all the work you do as well for the organization. Um, so with that, I'll just I'll just let everybody go. It's almost twelve. So thanks again for for listening, folks, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for having me. Have a great one. Thank you for joining Women of Color, Advancing Peace and Security. Please visit WCAPS.org. That's W-C-A-P-S dot org.